All right, pray with me real quick. Father, I pray that you um, would make us love you more and look like you more, um, and that we would leave today um, bearing your image with more fullness um, and more clearly. In your son's name I pray, amen. When I was little, my dad, um, he would hand me a tool or a little gadget, and he would ask me what I thought it was for, what I thought was its purpose. Um, and I remember I would study them in front of him, I would flip them over, I'd fiddle with the little moving parts. And after a time of inspection, I would hand it back to him and then arrive at my answer. And I remember glowing with delight when my dad would confirm that I was correct. And it was in these moments that I could so tangibly feel his love and delight for me. And it was through this game that I first experienced the thrill of discovery that has ever since fueled my passion for learning. But as I grew, my hunger for knowledge changed from this game that I would play with my dad into something a little more sinister, but, but not obviously at first. As I started to see and experience the brokenness in this world and in myself, knowledge became a tool for me, for salvation. Instead of a place of delight and discovery, learning became a burden, an anxious coping mechanism. The phrase, you know better than that, altered only slightly yet significantly to become, you should have known better. And that became my mantra. Still, it is often the first thing I berate myself with when confronted with the fall, even this morning. And in my spiral, I tell myself, if only I knew enough about myself and about the world, then I might just be able to prevent any bad thing from happening, and maybe I could keep my sin record clean. I quickly discerned that I had two enemies in this broken world, my own sin and suffering, and knowledge could liberate me from both. But with my first problem with sin, even before I knew what sanctification was, I assumed it was something that, I, a process rather, that I could control through my own knowledge. I thought, if I know the right thing, then I'll do the right thing. That's easy enough. And again, the rebuke, you know better, seemed to affirm this. Of course, as I matured, I developed a little bit more nuanced version. That is, if I know why and how I sin, then maybe I can learn how to avoid this sin. Which it isn't totally wrong, right? There's some of that in sanctification. And growing up, this mostly worked, um, at least outwardly. I was the good kid, I was the easy child. Sure, I messed up, I fought with my sister, I didn't clean my room when I was asked, but I would learn and I would quickly repent. I was great in Sunday school, I knew all the answers, I even memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Thanks. <laughs> But under it all, there was an uneasiness. There was a deep insecurity. Places of ignorance weren't opportunities to learn. They were deeply threatening. And even if I knew the right answer at one point, I would be so worried that I would forget it. Learning once wasn't enough. I needed to retain everything, and it needed to be perfect. If my means of salvation was through knowledge, maybe I could get away with one free pass. Okay, well, you can have known that. But that could only be true once. So I would sin, I would confess, and then I would be fraught with anxiety about forgetting it. In my means of salvation, there was no place for true repentance, and there was no place for grace. While theologically this distortion of sanctification and salvation is pretty obvious, right? Um, this isn't merely a head issue, but it's a heart issue. It really took until my junior year at Covenant before I realized how misguided and dangerous this lie was. To make a very long story short, I found myself completely blindsided by a sin of an unhealthy friendship. And while the signs were obvious to literally everyone else, I didn't see them. And I couldn't see them because I was so deceived by sin. 
And what's worse is when I was confronted, I denied it. I was, before I was blinded, but then I became hardened. I needed Holy Spirit to soften me. And he did, through community of friends and mentors over time, and changed my heart into repentance and to be able to receive God's grace. But of course, that was only half of my use of knowledge as salvation. The other half was to prevent or at least mitigate the suffering that plagues us from the fall. I once heard that often our worst fears are things that have already happened to us. We've been rejected, belittled, betrayed, neglected, used and abused. So we do everything in our power and we vow to make sure that will never happen again. My plan was to make sure that I could learn enough about the world so that I could discern and avoid any potential for any and every type of suffering. I know I, I couldn't fix all of the world of suffering, but maybe I could just be smart enough to avoid it for me, or at least the really painful suffering. But it didn't work, and it doesn't. The minute I embarrass myself, I feel jealousy. When I let my leftovers go bad or forget about that avocado for a day, Whenever my health fails me again, when I slack on devotional time for maybe days, then weeks, then months at a time, when I forget about a meeting with one of y'all, whatever it is, the accusations fly. And there comes again the familiar phrase, you should have known better. You know you should have written that meeting down. You know when you eat that food, it makes your stomach hurt. You know enough theology to not be tempted by that lie again. And you know avocados have a ripe window of only about three hours. Even when the failure of my coping mechanism was exposed, I still fought for it. But I had to break through summer of 2020. Of course, that was when the world was introduced to the unique suffering and fear that came with the coronavirus. But for me that summer, my own health started to decline. While my stomach problems started back in college, that summer my health took a steep downward turn. So much so that I finally got diagnosed um, with Crohn's, which is an autoimmune disease that attacks your digestive system. But before I was diagnosed and plans for treatment were offered, I found myself one morning reading from the Bible. Isaiah 30, 30, 19 brought me to tears as it reads, for a people shall dwell in Zion, what we just sang about, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right and when you turn to the left. Amid the physical pain, my mind couldn't shake that I had done something to give me this disease. Maybe I ignored the signs too long in college. I was too anxious. I didn't eat the right foods. Maybe I was too trusting of conventional medicine. But the list goes on. I was suffering and I felt like it was my fault because I should have known better. I should have been able to prevent it but I didn't and I couldn't. And that's where the passage met me. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Why refer to God as teacher, not comforter? And why is God the one giving me the bread of adversity and the water of affliction? Ironically, at that point, about anything I ate caused me pain. So that verse wasn't lost on me. Could it be then that God wanted to teach me something through my suffering, not teach me how to avoid it? This simple question in one fell swoop tore down years of work entrenching the lie that my knowledge could and would save me from suffering. So maybe you've listened this far and you really can't relate. Um, your accusation isn't you should have known better. 
Maybe for you it's a step deeper. Maybe it's you're such a failure, why even try? You wouldn't understand anyway. Or maybe if you never learn, then you can never know better. And so you can't be held responsible. So check out, don't engage. Ignorance is bliss. Don't learn, don't be curious, what's the use anyway? When scripture talks about knowledge, it often distinguishes between worldly knowledge and biblical wisdom. And the key distinction be, can be found in where knowledge takes us and what it does to us. Worldly knowledge distances us from God and it encourages us towards independence and pride. The Proverbs often refer to this type of knowledge as being wise in your own eyes, and it fiercely warns against it. But that's exactly what my knowledge did when applied as a means of salvation. I need to know, I need knowledge to save me because I don't think God can, or at the very least, I don't want him to need to. And I was doing exactly what, the opposite of what scripture says when it commands to lean not on your own understanding. In fact, I had created an intricate system that required me to lean on my own understanding. And this phrase again, you should have known better, is really just an expression of my pride, that I could even save myself through my own omniscience. But I had it all wrong. You see, the lack of omniscience isn't a deficiency, moral or otherwise, but the expectation of omniscience is. Or say, you aren't the type to lean on your own understanding. You prefer ignorance, but you're doing the same thing, right? If you don't know any better, you still don't need God. Uh, your pride is still working to make you independent, or at the very least, less aware of your dependence. But we're not unique in this. Going back to the garden, our first parents did the same thing. Do you ever find it strange that the name of the tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I always thought it would be a good thing for Adam to know the difference between good and evil. But before they fall, they didn't need to know because they knew God and they lived in his presence. All they knew was the goodness and that they could trust God to discern for them. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to know for themselves. They didn't want to need God, they wanted to become God. And friends, ever in our footsteps do we find ourselves. We with Adam and Eve were betrayed by this lie. And since the beginning of humanity, we have trusted our own knowledge to save us, but it can't because it was never made to. But wake up for this. The good news, salvation doesn't come from our knowledge or lack of it. Salvation comes from Christ taking our humanity, dying and raising from the dead so that we can be restored to right relationship with God once more. So that through his blood, we may enter into his presence so that we who believe along with all of creation will be completely delivered both from sin and suffering once and for all. This is our hope. This is what we bank everything on. Okay, but if this is true um, and we don't need knowledge to save ourselves, then why do we learn? Why study? What does it matter anyway? You're all paying to be here, you're taking classes, so what's the point? Why not skip a few classes, maybe even drop out? I believe the primary purpose of learning and of knowledge is as a means to worship God. All over the Bible, but particularly in the Proverbs, we're implored to seek knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And this time, not a knowledge that puffs us up and leads us away from God, but a knowledge that necessarily draws us into his presence. This knowledge has two distinct characteristics. Instead of bearing the fruit of pride and independence, it produces a heart of humility and of dependence. Instead of leading us away from God, it points us to him. To illustrate this, I want to share two different times that I felt this worship through my studies at Covenant. Like any good philosophy major, the first time was through a thought experiment. 
I believe it was my sophomore year in metaphysics class, Dr. Wingard had us all imagine a cube. Easy enough. So we all brought to mind a six-sided cube. Then he said plainly, God can see all sides of the cube at once. Okay. So immediately I start imagining the cube. It's maybe a little bit like transparent, kind of. I'm like, well, that's not it. Okay. So then I imagine seeing the cube from a bunch of different angles, kind of like um, the surveillance screens of Batman's Batcave, if y'all gather. But that wasn't it either, right? And so I'm still trying to struggle for, to, to imagine something like what God could see. And Dr. Wingard added, inside and out. And that was it. It ruined me. I was stunned. I remember sitting in the Mills classroom with my eyes pulling with tears. I couldn't even imagine something as simple as God seeing all sides of a cube at once, inside and out. Who is this God that I can't even imagine how he perceives of something so insignificant? I was drawn to worship because I saw two things at once, how great God is and how finite I am. Paul in Romans 11 gives words to what I was experiencing when he proclaims, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his past beyond tracing out. If in my default learning that led to pride and independence, this brought me to humility and dependence. This experience displayed my right relationship with God, God as omniscient creator and me as worshipful creature. My posture shifted and in humility, I saw my need for him. How could I possibly engage with philosophy without him? And if I could, why would I if he's so great? How could I take him out of the picture? And there's a sort of irony in this though. It was when my learning met its end, when I couldn't possibly understand more, that's when my learning became worshipful. Without God, when we come to the end of ourselves, we're left with despair. But with God, in his presence, we can only respond in worship. And it's the coming to end of myself that humbled me and reminded me of my dependence. And it's this head knowledge that culminates in relational knowledge. That is when I was brought into God's presence. Or really, that I was made aware of his presence. Discovering and experiencing God's glory doesn't make it any more true. God doesn't need me to discover anything about this world. But in my discovery, it enabled me to do the most human thing I could do, which is to worship our creator. The second time was in Dr. Whitebroat's Women, Art, and Cultures class. For those of you, yeah, for those of you who know, who have taken the class, you likely remember the night um, when we discussed particularly the mistreatment of women depicted in art through the centuries. Um, after looking at and discussing this heavy topic with Dr. Whitebroat, she concluded through tears, pointing us to Jesus' love and work of redemption for women specifically. She shared from her heart what enables her to approach such heavy topics is the person of Jesus himself. Seamlessly, she ended in prayer, still with tears in her eyes. I remember sitting there, and I felt the weight that was of the fall that was displayed through these artworks that we talked about. And once again, by Dr. Whitebroat, I was ushered to the feet of Jesus. This knowledge could have hardened me and embittered me. It could have made me hate men um, and even vow to never trust them. And honestly, left to myself, I think it would have. But Dr. Whitebroat, inviting God into the story, led my heart to worship. If the cube example humbled me through God's grandeur, Dr. Whitebroat's tears showed me his love. In her commencement speech a few years back, Dr. Whitebroat said, if Jesus coming back is coming back to make all things sad and true, then the more sad things that we know, the bigger Jesus must be to make that true. 
She continued, calling out our brokenness doesn't diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies it. If the knowledge of very palpable wickedness through art, it was through that that I was able to worship God by magnifying him in my own heart. And this is exactly what we were made for. Integrating our faith and learning isn't just some marketing scheme used to distinguish us from other colleges. It's recognizing the truth of how God made this world and us in it. It enables us to live out our calling as human image bearers to glorify God and enjoy him. Now, as we learn at Covenant College and into eternity with him in paradise. If you ever feel purposeless or like you're waiting for your life to really matter or begin, thanks to the catechism summary of scripture, we know our purpose. And our greatest purpose is just that, to glorify God and enjoy him, which more simply put, just means to worship him. And since y'all are all students, that means worshiping him through your studies. So maybe you've experienced something like either of these stories before, but there might be a good bit of you who haven't, or maybe you were tracking with me up to a point, but your response was very different, um, and maybe it didn't result into worship. So how do you begin to create a learning that will lead to worship? First, find time to be alone with God even if just for five minutes at the end of the day or even at the end of the week, and ask God to reveal to you what he's up to in your daily life. What is he doing in your studies? And wait, don't do anything. Just wait for God to speak, and when he does, listen. And then when you're in class, when you're having a conversation after chapel, ask yourself, your professors, your friend, and God again, what does Christ have to do with this? What does this tell me about him and who he is? And if you can't find an answer, Keep spending time in God's presence and discussing it with people until you do. Chase the answers to these questions like your education depends on it. And I promise you, there will always be a connection. Christ has something to do with and is doing something in everything. Of course, in different and nuanced ways, but that's what actually makes it really exciting. And as you master asking these questions, others will naturally follow. What is God calling me to do with this knowledge? How can I use this knowledge to love my neighbor? And start, start by looking for God in those topics that you are most passionate about, the ones that you are naturally curious about, the ones that you get a ping of excitement when they get brought up in conversation, or even the ones that anger you, um, maybe the ones that deeply sadden you. Then ask, how might you acknowledge and invite God into that? He made you with passions. He made you with delight. He made you to care for his creation with him. And in studying our passions with God, you'll find them enriched, more delightful, more meaningful than before. You'll be learning, but with more of the story, more of the context, more truth, not less. And it will give you more joy and more hope. And it will enable you to take it further. We can confidently and courageously pursue the ends of ourselves and our understanding because we know God will be there at the end. We can boldly explore and acknowledge even the darkest places because as the psalmist says, Darkness is as light to God. And through darkness, God's glory can be proclaimed in our hearts. Then as you ask these questions and pursue these studies and invite God into your learning without even realizing it, you will feel your heart compelled to worship God. And then your knowledge will be turned to wisdom. But what about those of you who aren't naturally very academic um, and you don't really sense this love of learning? Your first assignment is to practice worshiping God through what you already enjoy and find fun. 
Perhaps you think the enjoy part of our purpose is reserved only for the super serious spiritual people. The things you enjoy couldn't possibly be spiritual or cause you to worship. Maybe you can't even imagine enjoying God. And honestly, if you can't, I don't really blame you. I mean, I think this even starts in youth group, right? There's like the fun times where you play games at the beginning, and then we get really serious for the Bible study, right? And maybe it's even somber um, or boring or depressing even. We know in, our, in our, the place for faith, um, we know rather the place in our faith for repentance and even gratitude. But what about joy? Having fun with God? Laughing with him? Dancing with him? aside from perhaps the more charismatic among us, no way. Your first assignment is to do just that, though. To put another way, have you ever experienced yourself come alive when you just have this sense that you were made for this, Um, that even for a moment you feel yourself thriving or a deep sense of purpose? Bear with me here. But the visual I get is of a horse running through a meadow, which perhaps is left over from my diehard obligatory little girl horse phase, But when I conjure this image up, I'm so certain that God made these majestic animals with each intricate muscle for no other purpose than to look glorious running. He made them for it. What is that for you? What causes your soul to lighten up? Whatever you enjoy, invite God into the party. And to be clear, God may and he will discipline you in areas that you find fun that are bad for you. He will continue to refine what you enjoy, but that doesn't mean we don't pursue it, and it certainly doesn't mean we don't pursue it without God. So maybe God is fun, right? He's not the cosmic killjoy. He's actually joy himself, and the fun and delight that you're experiencing aren't offensive to God. He created you to find delight in this world, but more than that, he invited you to find delight in those things so that they could usher you into his presence, And then let this practice inform how you worship God through your academics. In this season, God has called you to be a student. You need to apply yourself in the classroom. You need to learn. You're giving your time and money to this endeavor. Your professors are pouring into you. And you're called to steward it well. And all of your learning will be worthless to the kingdom of God if it is not a means of worship that pours out in love for him and each other. And to those who do share with me in a love for learning, this enriches and enjoy and it enriches the, in, the enjoyment and breadth of your knowledge. It doesn't diminish it. And if you're ever tempted to, be in, tempted to be embarrassed by your faith and hide it in an academic context, let me say plainly to you, your faith is your biggest asset in learning. Friends, as Christians, we have something unique to offer this world. Those outside of Christ can't see the kingdom perspective. Of course, we can and should learn from much, outside, much of those outside of the faith, but they will always be missing the grander narrative. They will always be limited by their ignorance of most fundamentally who they are and who God is. Our faith doesn't hinder our ability to learn and contribute to the academic community. In fact, it makes us indispensable to it. Integrating our faith is restoring for us the greater picture. It's not shoehorning in a Bible lesson. And this makes our learning purposeful beyond just a grade or a diploma. Don't settle for an education that splashes in the shallows when your faith leads you to plunge into the depths and sustains you through the rapids. Finally, for those like me who've ever uttered to themselves, you should have known better. Find peace and comfort 
knowing that God never asked you to save yourself through your own wits. He knew that was too large of a burden for you and your understanding to bear. Instead, we are called to acknowledge him in all things, and he will direct our paths, yes, even through sin and suffering, until we reach him in glory. And with this burden relieved, your learning can be restored to delight and life. And in conclusion, this actually brings us back to where we began. Um, That was my love of learning with my dad in the game we would play. I want to leave you with this picture because I think it most clearly illustrates what worshipful learning looks like. The same delight that my dad had for me when I discovered the purpose of a newest tool, God has for us when we learn and discover things about him and his world. If I was struggling to give my dad an answer, he never shamed me or belittled me. Instead, he waited patiently and offered me hints. And because it was a game, it never felt like a burden or toilsome. My dad knew the purpose of every tool and gadget he handed me. He didn't need me to tell him the answer. So there was no anxiety, just an opportunity for joy. And seeing my dad's joy made the game irresistible. Even when I was getting a little older and I felt compelled to pretend like I wasn't interested anymore, I still would participate every time. I couldn't say no. Now, if this is how my dad was with me, how much more beautiful and good do you think it is with our Father in heaven? So the next time you're in class or even outside of class and you discover something, you have an aha moment, I encourage you to imagine your discovery causing God's eyes to beam and smile, for his smile to radiate towards you. I long for us all through, worshipful, through faithful and worshipful studies to be able to hear from our Father, this is my son or daughter whom I love, and with them I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for covenant. Thank you for a place where we can learn. Um, And we don't get to learn just about this world, but we get to learn about you. Father, let us love learning and let us love the learning that points to you. Father, comfort those and encourage those who feel like learning is a burden. Let it be free and let it be beautiful. And those of us who are leaning on ourselves, Father, let us pour our dependence on you, that you will hold us tight, and you will shower us with your love. In your son's name I pray. Amen.